Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Mike McCormack, on his latest novel, This Plague of Souls. Mike McCormack is an award-winning novelist and short story writer from Mayo Island. His previous works include Getting It in the Head, Notes from a Coma, which was shortlisted for the BGE Irish Novel of the Year, and forensic songs. In 1996, he was awarded the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature for Getting It in the Head. In 2016, his novel Solar Bones won the Goldsmiths Prize and was the BGE Irish Book of the Year, was long listed for the Man Booker Prize in 2017, and won the International Dublin Literary Award in 2018. And today we're here to talk about Mike's latest novel, which is This Plague of Souls. Mike, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be here. So I ask every novelist I interview this first question, and I'm especially excited for this novel. Please, would you tell me, Mike, how you would describe this novel? Okay. Um, I would describe it, uh, when I try to conceive of it in my head, I described it as a piece of metaphysical noir. So obviously, I the book seems to me to be uh, to be written under the star of those French existential thrillers that I've loved, uh, people like uh, Philippe Dard, I think it is, and, and Pascal Garnier, Latterly and Simonon, all of those writers who managed to deliver short, sharp, snappy, dark novels in less than 200 pages, uh, those noir novels in which there was great existential issues in it. They weren't like their American counterparts where issues were resolved with gunplay and violence and that. It seemed to me that um, ideas were the dangerous things in these books uh, and life itself was a dangerous proposition. So when I was sitting down to do it, I, I think I've loved the cliptness and the darkness of, of, uh, of European noir. But I've always had this thing in my head. Can I yoke disparate things together? I think, well, Let's make it a metaphysical noir. And what would a metaphysical noir be? And then I thought, well, noir is generally about revenge, reward, all of that, uh, whether it be a Maltese falcon or whether it be, you know, beautiful women or something like that, or the love of a beautiful woman or something like that. But in this, I wanted reality, I think, itself to be the, the issue. Uh, I wanted the things that we know. What are the things we know and what are the things we can put our faith in? 
So to go back to the, the beginning of your question, I think I conceived of it as a, as a piece of metaphysical noir. One of those sharp, dark little books that came up on you quickly, delivered a whack on the ear and left you with a black stain on your soul, a black watermark on your soul. That was my conception. <laughs> well, I was I was excited to ask you the question because I read in a different interview with you that you mentioned that you wanted to write a book that you couldn't explain. Well, that was the other part. Yeah. I wanted to uh, a book that I couldn't a book where I'd have to throw up my hands at the end and go, there's so much I know about this, but there is an awful lot of questions that I cannot answer. The central character, Neelan, he meets this man who puts it to him that he is responsible for a certain number of things for this construct, this artistic metaphysical construct that's out there, which seems to be nothing less than a reshaping of the world in some way or other. And he asks him, is he responsible for it? And Neelan says, he says, I can't help you. And now the question comes back to the author, me, do I know? And I don't know whether he's responsible for it or not. I couldn't tell you whether he's responsible for it or not. There are other questions in the book, and I don't know if he's, I don't know how how those resolve either. And but I have to be careful talking about this because because in, in some ways that doesn't sound a very attractive proposition to the reader. But I would hope that the book is, I would hope that the book leaves you with, with questions, but that what's between the covers of the book is very clear. And it seems to me, put very clearly, it's about two men who go in search of two different things and who arrive at a, a hotel in the west of Ireland. One of them goes in search of his wife and child, and the other, it seems to me, goes in search of God. And um, and they have this conversation. And as, yeah, a, a time came in the composition of the book when my cup of cluelessness overflowed, and I knew then that the book was complete. Well, we also, there's there's lots of answers in the book as to, well, Neelan, the character, the protagonist, well, we'll talk about him in a moment, but his character is sort of fleshed out over the over the course of the novel. We find out things, or do we? about, you know, what he may or may not have done. And so there is lots of stuff that we won't give away about the novel for yeah. the reader to discover for themselves. This is, on the one hand, it feels like a very different book to Solar Bones, which famously was composed of one long sentence. But it also seems to have a kinship as well. So are the two novels related in your mind? I think they are. And I think they can be read separately as well with no loss. Um, you're right. It's a very different book aesthetically and as a narrative construct. Solar Bones, as you said, was a single riverine outpour uninterrupted. And it was it was a sunlit book. And this one, this Plague of Souls, it's a darker, more nocturnal proposition. And it's also written in the rhythms of noir, short, sharp, clipped rhythms and that. When I had finished Solar Bones, I was very struck by the what I thought I saw it was only when it, when it was done, really, that I thought I saw what it was about. And this is about um, it was about men making the world, men making the world. And because Solar Bones is a book about an engineer, it's about a man who quite literally does make the world. And he, make, he makes it in roads and bridges and all those civil engineering projects that define our world and which we hold to be so dear. And he, on the other hand, this is the world he's built outside of himself. But he's also successfully built a family. He has a decent marriage. He's a good marriage. It's not without its troubles, but it's a good marriage. And he has two kids whom he loves and and is uh, and wants to be there for. Again, that's not without its difficulties. 
So it seems that in that book, what I seem to be very interested in is how men build these worlds that that are sometimes difficult for them to live in. We know that as an engineer, Marcus Conway found it difficult to live in the world because he had to cope with politicians and commercial interests. And sometimes engineering virtue is squeezed out by those two twin considerations in that. And so when I had finished Solar Bones, I think, geez, I really like that theme, that theme of world building, people who build worlds. I wonder, can I have another go at it? And this uh, this plague of souls uh, suggested itself as, as OK, there's how would an artist go about it? How would an artist go about rebuilding the world? I was very taken during COVID. And I don't know if, if this was the same in, in your part of the world, but I was very taken during COVID how, particularly during the first lockdown, artists stepped up to make it to make the world a better place. We, you know, my Facebook page, I sat and I watched concerts, free concerts at night. I listened to poetry recitals. I saw theatre being screened uh, live. And I saw all these wonderfully gifted people stepping up to this moment of uncertainty and menace. And I saw them give up their time, their gifts, their inspiration freely. And I was very impressed by that. I was very proud of it as well. This is my, you know, I'm an artist as well. And, and this was my, this was my tribe stepping forward to help alleviate this moment and to make sense of this moment. And then I was thinking that seemed to provide an ongoing prompt and, and meditation for uh, this plague of souls. I started a long time ago, this book. I started this book a long time ago. And my the first files I have on my computer go back to 2012. But what I noticed back then was that the book seemed to concern itself with how the world falls apart, how the world breaks down, how families break down, how, you know, the health systems and all sorts of other systems break down. But as the composing of the book went along, it became much more interested in how do we put it back together? How do we weld it together and sustain it and hold it together? And I think that that's where all of those meditations, that meditation of world building brings it into a conversation with solar bones it's a thematic continuation there's no real narrative other one or two things recur across the books and that but um say principally for instance the locale both of them start in the same place both of them actually and i, I never know would you it's amazing how clueless you can be about your own work but um I never noticed that the beginning of the two books are identical almost. Um, Solar Bones begins in the middle of the day and it, it begins on the Angelus Bell. A man returns to his own house and he's bewildered and he doesn't know where he is and that. And that's the sunlit one, Solar Bones. But this plague of souls begins in the middle of the night where a man comes home and it's not the Angelus Bell this time. It's the phone, his mobile phone that goes off in his pocket the moment he crosses the threshold into a house where he is kind of discombobulated and completely at sea for a little while. So, yeah, the books are in, I think, in conversation from each other. Well, actually, in conversation from each other and in conversation with each other. And also they are a meditation on the same theme of world building. So, yeah, there is that linkage between them. Well, this plague of souls also features the uh, the Angelus Bell as well as Solar Bones, right. but we won't we won't necessarily talk about why That's that right. is. I was going to ask you about how the book came together in terms of this sort of like you know gestation period. What's interesting is to hear you say that it, it started in 2012. The backdrop of this novel. Um, you mentioned the idea of the the world coming apart. The backdrop of this novel is a alluded to but quite vague security incident that's going on 
which I think in 2012 would definitely have had much more of a feeling of a terrorist incident. But now, latterly reading the book now, one also can't help but think of, you know, climate catastrophe and inevitably the pandemic as well. Yeah, you're definitely right uh, in that. When I would have started the book, it would definitely have been under the, the big narrative arc global narrative arc would have been the war on terror i think uh, there was the terrorist attacks over europe those terror attacks in bali and thailand and um because of, because we have this because we have this i suppose suspicious in, recurring suspicious incident where we, where we refuel american planes in 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 shannon airport lots of people have wondered and speculated that it would leave us vulnerable to some sort of terrorist attack because there's always been a suspicion that the Shannon airports, there has sometimes been a suspicion that Shannon airport might be used as a transit point for the, the conveying of prisoners to, to various unmarked locations for enhanced terrog- interrogation, as it's called, or, 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 or torture, as, as it's properly known. And people have raised this question again and again, and they've also po- they've pointed out that it makes us complicit in the war on terror. Ergo, we would be seen as a, as a, as a terrorist, um, target and um you know i have to say you know for my shame i have to say that when i'm walking around in my daily life i don't give that type of thing much thought myself but when i sit down to start and write that did come to my mind and asserted itself in the writing of the book and um and yeah it it um, there are pages in the book that seem to be like covid that take their shading and light and some other procedural drama from COVID. So that's why, in some sense, I speak of the book as a as a post-COVID novel from within COVID. I, uh, I would hope that it would be attractive in that way. I don't know, has a, has a great COVID novel been written yet? Maybe? I don't know. There's certainly been a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is my, my partial take on an aspect of it and that, yeah. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mike McCormack and we're talking about his new novel, This Plague of Souls. And so Mike, let's talk about Neelan, who is the protagonist of the novel. And again, I mentioned in the first half that his character is revealed and what he may have done or may not have done is revealed as as we go. So we're obviously not going to give anything that away. But tell us what we know about him, who he is at the beginning of the novel. Yeah, he returns to he returns to his to a house which we which within a couple of pages we find out is is his own house in that and we we find out through conversations that happen through the book that he is the son of a he's the son of a, a single father um from he lost his mother in what what we now what the the dates appear to suggest was the the Monaghan pub bombings the Dublin Monaghan pub bombings of nineteen seventy four. And he lost his mother in that incident. He was more or less birthed out of that shambles, out of that kind of terrorist attack. And because of that, he has lived alone with his father, a happy, a good, decent man. He's lived alone with him. And um, his father, his father looked after him, cared for him. They got on well together. These two men and these two father and boy in the in the one house, no woman ever crossing the threshold after after the death of uh, his his mother. And they... They put this world together and it's the world of a small farmer in the west of Ireland. And he is he's indistinguishable for every other young boy from his age in that. But except for one thing that he's quite gifted, he's a gifted artist, particularly gifted with drawing and um, good with charcoal, good with pen and ink drawing. That seems to be what he, he will go on to have a reputation for being the, the best draftsman of his generation. Uh, his father dies quite er- early in his life and he, he rents his farm out. And the next thing then he finds is that he's, we find him in college making his reputation as a, as an artist and that. And uh, we know, we don't know that much about him, except that he does get involved with a very beautiful woman, uh, a woman called Alwyn. And she, um, she exerts a fascination and, and a spell over him. She seems to be wiser and smarter than him. And they have a child together. So that's the really the facts of what we know about his life. The rest, it seems to me, is speculation. 
Is he responsible for the crime? Uh, oh yes, and he, he is. Uh, he is a. He comes back after being on remand. He was accused of a, uh, of a crime, a crime that collapsed when it got to trial. And um, so those are the things we know. But it's the things outside that. Uh, it's the things outside of those things we know that are that are really um, interesting and that we find beguiling, and which I, as the author, I I, ca- I cannot answer for either. I, I don't know. So Owen, his wife, um, she's disappeared or she is not present in the house when he comes back. We only ever hear about her through his sort of imaginings, through his descriptions. And he sees her as this, like you mentioned, he he sees her as, you know, maybe maybe smarter than him. But he also sees her in this, like quite the way he describes her is sort of quite saintly. He sort of puts her on a pedestal. Tell us a little bit more what you can about her. Again, we have to be careful about what we give away. Did you find her interesting? You did. Yeah. Yes, I do, because I find her interesting as well. He he um he met her in what seems to be that as part of that rave culture where there was throbbing throbbing beats and rhythms and flashing lights and she looms out of this thing and she kisses him and she has a tab on her tongue. And the next thing he you know, he wakes up with her the next day and he's he's besotted he's up he's besotted with her or intrigued by her and they go and they have a conversation. She has a she has a she tells him she has this interesting conversation. She tells him what she does. She says, I come and I listen to your story and you tell me about your life. And then I go and it's fed into a think tank and all of a sudden government policy is shifted. So again, she's one of these people that seems to she's one of these people that seems to make the world in one way or other, shape the world in one way or other. And the next thing then was that um, she she appears to have a, a she has a drug habit a really serious drug habit and he rescues her from that and and in a scene that that uh, it, it's it's a scene in which he makes his reputation as as both a man of action and uh, and a thing he he carries her west and she part of her never forgives him for that he he sees it as as he's rescuing a princess from a high tower or something like that and she sees it as an abduction. Yeah, he kidnaps um, her, Mike. He kidnaps. He, her. he, he kidnaps her. Just, <laughs> all right, we'll, I'll confess to it. He kidnaps her, and uh, and she and then they come home and they have this they have this unmerciful fight, uh, which is I think the longest scene in the book in many ways, and it's a fight that goes on for four pages, and and it's a fight. It's a fight to exhaustion, not towards injury or or towards annihilation. It's a fight towards exhaustion. It's a fight towards cleanliness, uh, in which it tries to both she and him try to purge her of the toxins in her body. And uh, she goes on to have a she goes on to live with him and have a child by him and everything. But then he comes back and he finds her gone. And where has she gone to? Uh, and where has she taken his child? He has obviously let her down seriously in some way or other. And uh, now she's gone. And, and so this man who rings him up in the middle of the night, he seems to hold out the promise that he can answer this question. He can tell him where she is. And that's the lure that brings him on this car journey and a odyssey towards this hotel where he meets this interlocutor, this man who seems to be who seems to know an awful lot about uh, an awful lot about Neela. So that's all one. You're right. She's a pale presence. Um, pale, I would, I would hope in not being underwrote, but in pale is in mysterious. I also thought, I mean, it may be just for the name as well, but although you mentioned, you know, they they meet at, at a rave. In my mind, she was this sort of like saintly figure from some illuminated manuscript, some sort of like <laughs> you know old ancient manuscript, and like just did, looked he, like something out of Lord of the Rings or something. Yeah, <laughs> and he, he he has a curious meditation on her, where he where he speaks of her that she's 
a sacrificial victim in some sort of ancient tableau or something like that and and then he has another he has another vision of her floating on her back in outer space trailing a load of intravenous lines and and, uh, and catheters and things like that and I, and um I don't know what he's trying to get at I'm not awful sure what he's trying to get at in 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 both of those things but he definitely thinks about he certainly sees her visually she presents a very strong visual presence to him for all her paleness she presents a very strong visual presence to him and uh, and she has real allure I, I, yeah I'm quite I have to say I'm quite taken with her myself and I don't know much more than that about her but um but yeah she's uh, she's very interesting we've talked about the two of the main characters and I've deliberately avoided talking about the man on the phone although you you've mentioned him a couple of times he's the the other sort of of this sort of triumvirate of main characters and the world that Neelan comes back to and then drives through seems in the main quite depopulated i mean you mentioned that you know this is a, a metaphorical novel and as one reads it one might be lulled into the into the idea that he is like driving through some sort of like post-apocalyptic scene um but then we do start to we do start to get glimpses of other characters a, a lot of the chapters will end with like just a little tiny sketch of another character which we won't talk about why that all comes back towards the end of the novel as to as to maybe who these people are but I just wanted to talk about those like incredibly vivid little sketches of people just writing your writing of though you're composing of those little little sort of sketches of these people because they're they're wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I I agonized over them. All right, I didn't know because they represent a kind of a, a visual shift and a the, the, a a visual shift at the end of those chapters. And the difficulty was in trying to both maintain this is to maintain maintain the rhythm of the chapter in which they were appended to and um i'm I'm glad you found those interesting because i had agonized about i had agonized about about putting them there and leaving them there and um and and in the end i took a, a gamble on on leaving the, uh, on leaving them there uh by no means i was by no means certain that they would that they were right but um I, you know just seeing well i took a gamble and and uh no one has told me that they're a complete disaster. But you're right, there there's four or five of them people. There's one woman who's buying a watch for her son. There's another woman looking through a boots catalogue. Uh there are four or five people that men out in the field digging a trial hole. And um there is uh I, I don't know, there's there's one or two more that, that won't won't come to me at the moment. And they just seem to be, yeah. It, it, it's interesting that you you bring the bring those forward in in the it's interesting actually and i didn't think of this it's interesting that you you speak about this in the context of a denuded and depopulated world through which the book does appear to move by times it's um in fact he goes to his neighbor's house and there's no one at the neighbor's house and that so it's very interesting that uh, i i never thought of, of that i have to say uh, but they're people that i'm fond of they have uh, they are one of a kind of um a gallery of people that I think turn towards the final moment of the book. So to finish it off then, can I get you to read us a bit? You can, and, and thank you so much for your time and attention. I really appreciate it. And um, this uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I'm going to read the first, first two and a half, three pages of the book. Opening the door and crossing the threshold in the dark triggers the phone in Neelan's pocket. He lowers his bag to the floor and looks at the screen. It's not a number he recognises. For the space of one airless heartbeat, he has a sense of things drifting sideways, draining over an edge. The side of his head is bathed in a forensic glow of the screen light. 
Yes, you're back. Hello. Welcome home, Neelan. Who am I talking to? Oh, only a friend would call at this hour. The voice on the other end is male and downbeat. It's not the sort you would choose to listen to in the dark. Neelan is aware of himself in two minds, the voice on the phone drawing against his immediate instinct to orient himself in the dark hallway. He turns to stand with his back to the wall. You know who I am? Oh, that's the least of what I know. What do you want? Two paces to his nephew, Neelan spots a light switch. He reaches out with his spare hand and throws it, throws it back and throws it again. Nothing. Half his face remains shrouded in blue light. He takes five steps to open a door and passes into what he senses is an open room. A swipe of his hand over a low shadow finds a table and he draws out a chair and he takes the rest of the phone call, sitting in the dark. I thought I'd give you a shout, the voice says. You have the wrong number. I don't think so. I'm going to hang up. No, there's no rush. Goodbye. We should meet up. No, not tonight. Not tonight. You're just in the door. You need some rest. We don't have anything to talk about. I would not be so sure. I am. Well, in a day or so when you're settled. No, not then, not ever. We'll talk again. One last thing. What is it? Don't be sitting there in the dark. The main switch is over the back door. And with that, the phone goes dead in Neelan's hand. Neelan pushes aside his immediate wish to dwell on the phone call. Who's it from? What's it about? He needs to orient himself in the house, so that is what he sets himself to. After a quick scan through his phone, he finds the torch app and he sweeps the room with the light at arm's length. To his right is another small room, barely six feet wide, with a fridge and a cooker and shelves along one wall. It's also a solid door over which sits a junction box with a complex array of meters and fuses. The main switch is at the end, but it's too high to reach, so he drags the chair from the table. He steps up and throws the light. Light floods from the hallway with the kitchenette and living room. The table sits beneath a large curtain window, and beyond it is a sink and a worktop with white cupboards overhead. Everything is flat, packed melamine. All the units date from sometime in the 80s. Around the left-hand walls is a three-seater couch over which hangs a picture of the Sacred Heart with its orange votive light now glowing beneath. He reaches out and flicks the switch. The walls come up in a cool green glow against which the pine table seems warm and homely. There are five doors off the L-shaped hallway. First is a bathroom with a shower cubicle tucked behind the door and a toilet behind the small window which looks out to the back of the house. Behind each of the other doors are three bedrooms of equal size with a double bed and built-in wardrobes. Pillows and duvets are stacked on the walls, but all the wardrobes are empty. Back into the hall. There's something coercive in the floor of the house, the way it draws him through it. These are doors that have to be opened, rooms that have to be entered and stood in. He catches himself looking up, examining the ceiling. What does he expect to find up there? Inside the front door is a sitting room where a laminate floor runs to a marble fireplace with a low mantelpiece. To the left and right of the chimney breast, empty bookshelves reach to the ceiling. In the middle of a floor is a single armchair angled towards a large television. Its shape and plain covering make it an obvious partner to the couch in the living room. Empty and all as the house is, it still has the residual home and bustle of a family life. It feels clean and it has been carefully maintained. It's not the raw cleanliness of a last-minute blitz before neighbours arrive but that ongoing visit effort that keeps it presentable to any sudden need. Neelan becomes aware of a low vibration throughout the room and stands listening for a moment. He lowers his hand to the radiator and finds that the heat has come on. The house is beginning to warm up. So I've been talking to Mike McCormack, who have been talking about his novel, This Plague of Souls, which is out in the UK now from Canongate. Mike, thanks so much for telling me about it. 
Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.